start another episode of Stoke Meter. And, uh, you know, I am, I am so pumped every time we have a guest, but this one in particular has me both humbled uh, and I am I, I, and, and, and a loss of words because the things that you're going to learn about Nick Leary, uh, if you don't know about him, are, are just astounding. So, Nick, thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Heck yeah, this is great. We well, are stoked. Yeah, <laughs> we're in, and Nick is uh, if I I'd say uh, an American hero. And I know Nick, you'll never just go. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hero. But when I read about you, there's no other word to describe it. Uh, just for the audience, I'm I'm literally going to read some of this stuff uh, right off of off the net. He goes, he 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 is an active Green Beret. Uh, he is serving the United States uh, citizens as a special forces warrant officer, assistant detachment commander, and is widely recognized as an expert, subject matter expert in special operations, intelligence fusion, and mission planning and execution ac across all uh, operational continua. Now, what makes him freaking amazing is the fact in 2013 in Afghanistan, he came around. Uh, he came face to face with the with the PKM machine gun. It was uh, it was mounted on a truck, and it led to catastrophic damages on his leg. And because of that, he lost a majority of leg. And and Nick, intervene anytime. I mean, this is you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're crushing it right now, Mike. Keep going. <laughs> but go, then go, here, here's the kicker. He wasn't satisfied with sitting on the sidelines. And two years later, he was in active duty. Back again. T two years, Nick. That's crazy, man. Two years. And we just, if you wouldn't mind going into some of the things that were happening that day, man. Just, the, I, I when I say I'm at a loss of words, I am in a freaking loss of words, man. <laughs> so. Yeah. I'm telling you, Nick, that means a lot too. You don't even understand for Maurice to be have a loss of words. That's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I mean, I'm sure we'll extract and get into some details, guys. But um, you know, to to summarize it briefly, it uh, it was all really rooted in the level of connectivity I have with what I do and mm -hmm. the lifestyle in which I live and. Uh, for many of us as service members, it's a, uh, it's a calling. And, you know, I, I fall into that category. It's not something I knew early on. It's not something I even really knew once I got into the service. It happened as a result of being in this industry, in this profession and falling in love with the process of earning the green beret every single day. And then, being able to identify that uh, my purpose in life is to be a warrior and to pledge an allegiance to a society in which I will defend at all costs. Mm -hmm. And I just put that on the upfront because the challenges that I'm sure a lot of people are envisioning right now, right? How does a one-legged guy go back to a special forces team and then go back into combat, which is a fair question. Um, with that level of commitment and identity to this lifestyle, yeah. there literally was no other option for me other than to figure out how to do it, right? Yeah. So it's not something that there was 
it was, I was really put at a decision point because to me, there was only one decision to make. And I was to go back to doing what I'm here on earth to do. I just had to figure out how. And certainly that came with a lot of uh, challenges and setbacks and failures and fear and discomfort and doubt and all the things. It was a roller coaster ride for a while, but it truly a burn the boats mentality because I see me doing what I do as necessary as it is for us as humans to breathe oxygen, to eat food at like the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. I have to do what I do. It's just a matter of figuring out how to do it. Damn it, man. There, I, I, I told my rugby team, I, I coach a rugby team, right? And I said, I want to interview a, a warrior. <laughs> and I, there, there were some questions that came about and one of you answered a majority of that. And this person asked, I'd like to know why you wanted to join. And then mm-hmm. you, you just told me what kept you going. But yeah, what, what uh, got you to join in the first place, man? Yeah, so I began looking at the military early in high school. I think it was around my sophomore year. I didn't have much of a direction. I was a horrible academic. I was a pretty good athlete, but that was the only thing that really gave me any kind of reason to get up in the morning was to play sports. Met with the Marine Corps recruiter my sophomore year of high school uh, because I was desperate to be respected. I wanted strength. I wanted, I struggled socially. I was really trying to figure out my way. And I was like, you know what? I'll go become a Marine. I think that'll give me what I'm looking for in life. And the only thing that detracted me from doing that was I started getting recruited to play football in college. So I ultimately went that route. Uh, Only reason why I went to school went to college. And then as we were talking about offline here, Mo, before we started recording was my sophomore year of college was 9-11. So, you know, a moment that just about every one of us that was at least old enough to appreciate the gravity of what was happening. It's a moment that we will never forget where we were, what we were doing um, in that same category. And I can remember watching this happen live and Although I was certainly proud to be an American at that time, I don't come from a strong military family. You know, I didn't have the red, white, and blue flowing through my veins the way it is now, but I remember how angry I was Mm -hmm. um, at what had happened. And I knew that we were going to respond and I wanted to be a part of that response purely based off of mostly rage and anger. So that's what drove me to to enlist. And at the time I was going to come in, I was going to do, you know, a five-year contract. I was going to get some, get some payback, serve my country, learn some cool stuff, and then get out and figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I didn't come in knowing this was going to be my career and knowing this was my purpose and this lifestyle. It was purely based off of 9-11 happened. We're going in. I'm going to be one of the guys going. That was it. Yeah. It wasn't until I got in and started and started actually living this lifestyle. That's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. I can't even imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Um, this is now not only my profession, but now this is a lifestyle that I will adopt. Oh, man. No, I, I and I can relate to you. I, uh, before audience, before that, we were talking, we were sharing a little bit of and 9-11. When that happened, I was I was running for my life. And made it in the building. And after that initial initial shock wore off, I mean, I was stuck about 150 yards from ground zero. And uh, I remember being trapped in the building. And as 
as everyone's fear started to come down, I get, and I, I, that's the wrong way to put it, is everyone's adrenaline started to wear off. I remember specifically knowing exactly who did it and being instantly rage. I had rage I haven't ever felt in my life because I knew someone came to our soil. And to your point, um, I wanted to take action on it. And the fact that you took that kind of action is is just uh it's not only honorable but the way that you went about doing that you took action to make it make it a better place now the one thing i will say about the that is the so-called rage i remember walking back home after getting out of that building and tower two collapsed right behind me after we were going i remember that even though everyone else was pretty ticked off too there was a really united feel all the way. I mean, you know, it's it's the East Coast, man. People say it like it is. There ain't no hole back. But I've never seen uh, people come together like that. And I'm wondering when you joined and initially that that was a spark to get people in. What was that feeling of what was that a similar feeling of unity that you felt with everyone that was enlisting at that time? Yeah, I'll, I mean, it, it's, it's somewhat of a cliche, but, you know, 9-11 is one of the one of the worst days uh, that in, in American history. Yeah. Um, but September 12th is one of the greatest because mm-hmm. exactly what, what you just said, you know, the United We Stand slogan, it just it, it superseded and it transcended just about all uh, differences and in, in areas of of. Uh, of separation uh, between culture, religion, political affiliation, like none of that stuff seemed to matter yeah. on September 12th. And it was really an amazing time to be part of this society. Uh, yeah. To answer your question more acutely, you know, when I got in, uh, there were a lot, I'd say at this point, probably most of the service members I was going through, even just as, as early as basic training with most were there because of, you know, quote, the 9-11 effect. Got it. Um, this wasn't, you know, so 9-11 obviously happened September or 2001. I came in in 2007. So mm. <clears throat> I struggled to stay in school uh, when that first happened. I was going to drop out of college and just go, uh, ultimately listen to some mentors and some teachers and some friends. And I stayed in and I grinded out the rest of my degree. But even, you know, six years later, there was still that same urge to get into the fight because we were now surging in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were a lot of, you know, wounded people coming back. And what we were doing as a military was all over the media. It was everywhere. And it was a really impactful time within the Department of Defense. So even at that point in time, 2007, I'd say most of those that were coming in was was based off of 9-11 and wanted to be a part of that response that we were still that we were still going through yeah man oh man oh man gary i i, I gotta ask you because i mean you were you uh, gary was actually looking on uh looking for me in places where he thought i was deceased man and i just wondered <laughs> just, what, what what were your thoughts on all that good stuff i know this is this is nick but i just kind of bought back in here well, you, you guys were talking, I, I really appreciate what you were talking about September 12th, because I think that is a very underrated statement. The thing that I I really appreciate about September 12th, because September 11th, it was 
focused around rage and it was focused around hate and that type of thing. From my perspective, and I could be way wrong, but it seems like on September 12th, as Americans, it wasn't about focusing outward on the hate. What was really impressive is the unification that happened as a nation. We all became brothers and sisters and Americans, regardless of who we were. And so to me, that was that was probably one of the most impressive things about it. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it not that the, not that the hate and rage wasn't still there. But the bigger factor, the bigger element was the the cohesiveness that happened in the country was unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. And I don't know if we ever will again, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. But one of the things I want to talk about, Nick, is it, it it's so cool to see how when you got in, that became your calling, that became your passion, that became who you were. And so many people go through life trying to to find that i gotta ask man you, do you ever wish that maybe your passion was a professional golfer or something else because man what you found is intense <laughs> i mean i can't even imagine so my question is is what was it about the military and specific you know going as a green beret and that type of stuff is why like how, what was it about it that pulled you in and locked you in for life? Yeah, it's a great question, man. And there's, there, there's, there's a lot to it. I'll hone in on say two or three. Uh, one, I think is, is somewhat obvious, certainly to those of us that work in any small team dynamic, certainly when you're in the military within special operations, but you know, the, the SF ODA, more, more commonly referred to as the ODA, which stands for Operational Detachment Alpha, which is a lot of words to say a team, a, a special forces team. The ODA is comprised of, of 12 individuals. And because of what we do and how we do it, uh, we are sent into really any environment anywhere in the world, and we are designed to be entirely self-sufficient, meaning that we do not need external support on the ground with us to facilitate what we need to do. And then furthermore, we're, we are considered force multipliers. Mm -hmm. And that really is the mechanism or the way in which we conduct unconventional warfare. And I know that there's a lot of big terminology there that most won't understand, which is okay. But the idea is you take 12 guys, you drop them off anywhere in the world, and we will find, vet, validate, train, recruit, and then bring a much larger fighting force into combat. That's yeah. hence the term force multiplier. So what we really do above all else is we are complex problem solvers. Mm -hmm. We are teachers. That's how, that's how we do what we do. So when you have a unit that's that small and every single individual has to carry an enormous load, both physically and professionally, the, uh, the, gr the gravity of what we're asked to do uh, is quite impactful. And to think that there's a way to receive that same level of satisfaction within a professional environment was just really difficult for me to even conceptualize. I'm like, there's no other industry I can go in for a job where I'm going to be put in situations like this. I mean, this is like the extreme of circumstances. So I really enjoyed being given a task with a real small crew of guys to solve a problem that almost exceeds what's practical 
but yet that's why we exist. Yeah. So there was certainly that. Um, and then I just, I realized that working within that capacity around such elite other people, other men in my case, like my team, like, men, like these, these, these men, these warriors that I was learning so much from, even though I was 24 years old when I came in, I was, I was like the new kid. I was like the baby. I was the puppy. And some of these senior guys that had been there, you know, since 2001 that had been through so much stuff and they're just downloading all this information into me, you know, both certainly as a tactician and as a warrior in terms of combat, but really just as, as a man, as a human, I was just, I was consuming so much information way too much that I could handle, but uh, I could just see how I was developing and growing as both a warrior in combat and as a human being. And I just couldn't imagine again, um, giving up on that. So even though on my first deployment into Afghanistan, uh, I still had, I think maybe two or three years left on my contract. I made the decision right there and that about halfway through that trip that no, no, this is this. And I actually just re-extended my contract by another six years. Yeah. Um, and at that point that's I was awesome. pretty much, I was pretty much all in. Yeah. You know, that's fantastic about what you just said there. I, we were just mentioning about how schoolwork was, was tough. I didn't like it. When I was failing. And now you're in this crazy circumstance in a very hostile environment and you're solving complex, uh, complex problems, complex. It's, it's so cool to see how, you were able to apply everything that they were trying to teach in education, but then making a difference. Um, and, and all of a sudden it all, all came to you. That's amazing. But, and the other thing though, that, that was really stood out about what you were, what you were doing over there is the formation of a code that, um, that you live by. And I came across something as you said, living by an ethos. And this was the warrior ethos and um, with everything that you faced, how did that come about? Because once I heard it, it made a ton of sense. But the formation of that ethos, that's, I would love to hear the background of that because I think that's why it hit me so hard is because it was so simple. It made so much sense. But when I realized where it was developed in, that, mm. uh, that, that had a particular impact. But what, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the, the warrior ethos, and I'll just I'll say to your audience what it is. It's, it's really four tenets is, is, is what it boils down to. The first being, I will always place the mission first, followed by I will never accept defeat, followed by I will never quit, followed by I will never leave a fallen comrade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ethos is, is really just principles, tenets, values in which we live our lives. Yeah. And these four tenets is something that get, that starts to get drilled into your brain the minute you show up to basic training. Yeah. And these certainly have a military tone to them, of course. Like just the word mission yeah. is has a military feel, right? I will I will never leave a fallen comrade. So the this it's military verbiage, but I've used these principles, these ethos for in, in my book as mm -hmm. the, as a way to outline the mindset that I really leveraged and continue to refine 
that that is what I use to get myself back into the fight and to continue to progress and do the things I do now. Because although all these things are, are, are military in nature, they're absolutely 100% translatable and transferable to anybody, regardless of your circumstances, what sector you're in, what you do for business, what you do for work. It doesn't yeah. matter. These are all translatable. And if I could just, I'll break them down here real quick. There's, there's a lot of layers to it, but if you think about, it, I will always place the mission first. What that says to me is having a clearly defined mission and the mission being that's the goal. That's the dream. That's the ambition. We all have them, the ability to identify it and apply a certain degree of clarity to that mission end state. I'll never accept defeat. What we're talking about there is really resilience, right? Mm -hmm. It's toughness. Yeah. It's the concept of you get knocked down seven times, you get up eight. I will not stay down. That is not to say we will not fail. Two different things, in my opinion. Yeah. There's yeah. failure and there's defeat. Failure will happen. In fact, it has to happen because that's where the wisdom's located. Defeat is getting knocked down and staying back down, mm. right? Yeah. I will never quit. The third one. This sounds very similar to I will never accept defeat. In my opinion, I will never quit boils down to persistence despite achievement. So Ooh. even though we achieve a certain goal, we achieve, a, we, we achieve that, that, the precipice of that ridgeline, we can't stay there. We have to, you should, we've earned a celebration, pat yourself on the back, crack a couple beers with your buddies, have a nice dinner. You've earned that, but then quickly move to the next ridgeline. Now, what are we doing? Because yeah. as far as I'm concerned, if we're not stretching, if we're not growing, we're just waiting for death. And that's no way for anyone to live. And then lastly, I will never leave a fallen comrade. As far as I'm concerned, that boils down to I will do whatever it takes by any righteous means necessary. And that, I think, is certainly something that is applicable across the sector. In the military, I will not leave you behind under any circumstances. I will come and get you. We will come and get you. We will do whatever it takes. And if you can apply these ethos and just look at it through that lens, man, some amazing things are possible. Man, you know I, I want to get out of this him. chair and go <laughs> freaking yeah. <laughs> that, that persistence despite achievement, that was, that's got to be one of the most powerful statements I have ever heard right there, man. Mm -hmm. Just because we do get so complacent. And I'm thinking of organizations, for instance, that I've consulted in, they'll leave a fallen comrade for the dollar or they'll do all that, those different things that are, oh my goodness. What, Gary, I'm sorry. I just totally oh, no, no, no. question was, there, man. <laughs> I was kind of the, the same thing. It was the, the, the cool thing about that ethos that jumped out to me as you were saying it is you, you kind of have, I don't know, I'll just call them bookends to kind of handle the good and the bad. I love how you say failure equals wisdom. So mm -hmm. on the on the potentially negative side of stuff, you got it. You're you're in control. Then on the positive side, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, persistent despite achievement. And yeah. so, how cool is it that that you know so many of what we consider ethos is it's all about either avoiding the bad, or mm. you know what I mean, mm -hmm. or or just it's all good. It's all good. Just keep, keep focusing on the good. Whereas to me, your ethos is an incredibly grounding one. Yes. It's incredible. It, it keeps the focus where it needs to be. I love that. I, I, I'm going to definitely <laughs> plagiarize. I'm going to steal that from you, man. I'm going to use that. Take it. Life. 
Yeah. Take it and run with it, man. <laughs> that was so freaking cool, man. Well, and I forgot to mention your book, Objective Secure, The Battle-Tested Guide to Goal Achievement. I Just for the sake of what I just learned about the, the broader term of warrior ethos, everyone should get the book just for that, man. <laughs> that was yeah. amazing. I, I, literally, that's a mic drop moment right there, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I got to ask you though, too, man, that's, I'm, I'm putting myself in your, your shoes where I had lost my leg and it's from a mentality standpoint, that is, I can't even imagine the mindset that it would take to overcome. And the fact that you not only overcame, but thrived, I watched you deadlift almost 500 pounds on the one leg, man. That was unbelievable i saw you grappling and rolling on the mat in jujitsu um without the prosthetic and you were doing just fine man against a pretty <laughs> able opponent there uh just how do you so this is this actually comes from another question that uh someone someone asked and that was what kind of mental block did you have to overcome to do something that most people wouldn't do mm. um that I, that I, I have to thank one of the rugby players to do that too. But that they, good question, yeah, great question. I'll say, and th- this may surprise uh, some people when they hear this because the greatest mental block for me—I can't say greatest. There were a bunch, certainly towards the top, and the one that jumps out at me when you ask that question. Um, most will assume it's physical in nature, mm-hmm. right? It's like. How do you do all these physical things? How do you run? How do you climb the mountains? How do you do the jujitsu stuff? But one of the greatest, possibly the greatest mental block to answer this question that I had to get past, and fortunately I was able to get past it relatively fast, was in the hospital, uh, knowing my leg was gone and is never coming back, Yeah, that no matter how hard I trained my body physically, I would never be as physically dominant as I was with two legs. Mm. And that was difficult to accept because I grew up an athlete. I was an athlete in college, a boxer, MMA fighter. I got, you know, special forces, green beret. I was the ass kicker on the team. (laughs) I was the physical guy. And, you know, that's what the stuff I enjoyed doing. And that's what my team asked of me to do. So kind of, it was a win-win for everybody. And what I did in my off time was I was in the weight room. I was on the track. I was in the fight house. I was on the range shooting guns. I was off driving really fast. It was the aggressive, you know, type A, like more stereotypical stuff that uh, special operators do. Well, it took me a minute to realize that my level of physicality would be decreased. Mm -hmm. And just the acceptance of that, when you identify as this, physical specimen and that's that's what i do and that's how i do it and that's how i provide value yeah to accept that was tough but i knew i needed to do that to be able to get past it to then figure out okay how can i increase what i'm going to lose physically where can i increase to maintain the asset that i absolutely have to be Mm -hmm. and it was by virtue of that that led me down to some of these other areas within being in the army special forces that are the much less sexier stuff, kind of the softer sides of our business, the softer skill sets and requirements that most don't think about and most really don't want to do, but these things are absolutely necessary 
for us to go do the cool guy stuff, right? right? Like you want to kick down the door and shoot the bad guy in the face. Well, great. We need people to do that. But in order for that to happen, a lot of other things also have to happen. Right. And these were things I wanted nothing to do with. Cause again, I was the ground and pound knuckle dragger type. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just through pure sheer discipline and faith, right? Faith being a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. I believed that if I invested myself into these other areas, that would make up the difference in what I would lose physically to remain as an overall asset. Right. So a little more context to the question, but that was a, that was a massive mental hurdle I had to get through. Yeah. And I don't look at it so much as I had to redefine myself. I just had to modify my perception of how I provide value. Oh my goodness. This is, it goes along with, have you ever, and I, I'll return as a name that you might've heard of Pam Zambic. Have you ever heard of Pam Zambic? I have. Yeah. Pam was talk, on the show and she was talking about uh, identity reconstruction, man. And mm-hmm. how, after she lost her husband, it was, I, I, I was a top salesperson. I was all these different things and all of a sudden it wiped out and she, she had to understand where she added value and that that reconstruction was there any point in time that well i'm sure there was that's a dumb question but just what were some of the those blocks that you had to overcome to find that again after that 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 event and it's a redundant question my apologies man but uh yeah does that make any sense (laughs) it does man and you know there's certainly a lot to it uh aside from from me forcing myself into these different sectors uh, because one of the greater challenges after living life as a two-legged guy for 30 years is not only relearning how to do basic, simple tasks, but unlearning years and years and years of what has become automated, right? What has just become either reactive or responsive to certain environments and situations. You have to really unlearn, kind of wipe the canvas clean a bit And then begin to learn the new process. And my work in jujitsu, which was a massive part of my recovery for a a whole bunch of different reasons. Physically, there was there range of motion, flexibility, endurance, um, stick-to-itiveness, resilience, like getting your ass kicked over and over again. There were a lot that I was extracting from what I maintained in jujitsu as an amputee. But having to wipe the slate clean a bit because in jujitsu it's very technical, right? You just build in these responses through training and drilling that if I'm in this position and my opponent moves here, I'm automatically going to go here and I'm going to look for this or this or this. Well, you learn through pain and embarrassment and failure on the mats amongst your teammates or at a competition that that doesn't work the way it used to. So we need to scrap that and then be rebuilding on how I actually can do it, which just goes back to the drawing board, trial and error, yeah. failure. Nope, that didn't work. Okay, this looks like it might work. Repetition, 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 continue to research, get good teammates around you, leverage them, and then rebuild it back up. So I use the jujitsu analogy because it's it's so pertaining to me as an all-encompassing human yeah. while I was going through all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so it not, it's not only learning the new task, it's unlearning years of repetition that's become responsive at the you, same time. You know what you know I what? love about that? I, I'm sorry. Right. I, I, I had one and did it. I'll go right. No, no, no. Sorry. Go ahead. But when, 
the the effective thing about what you said there is not only are you learning from failure, but you've become the teacher. And let me explain that. When I was in New York, I had the opportunity to go visit with Marcelo Garcia. You know who Marcelo mm. is, right? Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. And Marcelo, for those of you who don't know, is largely considered one of the best, if not the best, jujitsu practitioners in the world. He's my height. He's like five six, five seven, man. And uh, and I know you're about six six, <laughs> six five, six six. So like yeah. I was watching this dude destroy people, man. <laughs> I mean, he would. It was. There's something that uh, is very disconcerting about a small guy that can just get on your back and put you in a submission so fast you don't even know what happened. But mm-hmm. what I loved about what he did was after every every uh, match, not only would he shake hands, but he would teach. And that's one thing that I appreciate about what you're sharing here. Not only is it your failures and your persistence beyond the achievement and so on and so forth, but you've become this incredible teacher. And mm-hmm. that's where that's where you're adding so much value in a, in a world that so badly needs it in areas that you might not even have realized or, or realized perfectly well. But uh, I have to thank you for that. But anyway, Gary, sorry about that. Oh, no, no. In fact, what you said is really going to tie into what I wanted to talk about, too, is so we had a, an interview a while back with a, a prof- he used to be a professional wakeboarder. His name is Brad Smaley. And he had a, a wakeboarding accident where he became a quadriplegic. And that was, I can't remember how long ago was that. It had to be like a decade ago, yeah, it was about happened, a decade 2009, ago, yeah. something like that. And then, so we knew him back then. And then we just had, we, we met up with him again for an interview, you know, like a year ago. And one of the things he said really kind of hit me and it ties into your story as well. He said, as I've gotten older, all these professional wakeboarders are now, you know, they come to me and they say, man, I'm getting older and I can't do what I used to do. And I'm, you know, what, what I used to be able to, you know, stay up till two 30 in the morning and party. And then I recover the next day and I'm off now it takes me a week to recover. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, but he made a point that he goes, I went through that in a day. Mm-hmm. He goes, I went through that where I had to change who I was in a day and now they're just basically catching up. And so your story reminds me of that because there would have been, it would have come a time where you could not do what you do at the level you do it due to, even if it's just age, there would have come a time where, you know, in your sixties or whatever it might be, you're not going to be at the same level. Your, your physicality is going to be reduced no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just had it. You just had an incident where that happened in a day. And so what, what's cool about that, and this is where it ties into what uh, Maurice is talking about, is I imagine that you are going to be a, have a huge impact on your teammates in the future as their physicality, as they're not able to do what they do at the same level. And that's hard when your whole identity is wrapped around your physicality. And so I don't know if you've seen that already. Um, do you mind talking about that? Do people I have. Yeah, no, it's it's great, and I, I can't. I, I want to just preface this by saying, you know, when I got back from my 2015 trip over to Afghanistan, which was my first as a as a one legged guy, uh, there was a lot of visibility on us when we were on the deployment. A lot because this was unprecedented for us as an organization to take an above the knee amputee and put them back into that environment. So there was a lot of 
almost expectation for something to go wrong for them to then rip me off the team and be like, okay, man, we gave it a shot, but like, this doesn't, this isn't going to work. We were wildly successful. So that didn't happen. And when I came back home, I really got thrusted into the limelight, so to speak, by the army, by special operations community. You know, our senior leaders wanted to highlight, you know, what I did, what we did as a team, what we did as an organization, what our strength and conditioning program can do for us service members. There's a lot of ways for them to leverage that positive, positive messaging. Yeah. And I became kind of the example to that was used to send some of these messages. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I was like, no, 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 stop. <laughs> like, and it's, there's one instance when the USASAC commander, who's a three-star general, he sent down a request for, <laughs> you know, Sergeant or Staff Sergeant Nick Lavery to show up to this thing. There were some people from Washington that were coming down. They were going to talk about some budget stuff with our strength conditioning program. And he wanted me there to just talk through what I had been through and the program and all this stuff. It gets to me or my, my team leadership. They're like, Hey, the, the general's asking you to go to this thing. And I was like, no, I'm not going to that. Tell him no. So that made it like one level above us before. I think it was our company commander was like, Hey man, when a general asks you to be somewhere, he's not really asking you <laughs> to be anywhere. Like he's that, that, that's a polite way to say, get your ass to this place at this time and be ready to execute according to my requirements. So I did, you know, I went and I showed up and I did the thing and I I gave the brief, the presentation. There was a lot of shock and awe going on from, you know, policymakers. And at the conclusion of that event, General Cleveland, who was the USASAC commander at the time, he pulls me aside and says, Hey man, listen, I I know that you don't enjoy this stuff. I know that you, you want to be treated the exact same as any other guy on a team. And that's your job. And that's your profession. And that's your focus. And that's what you want to do. I get that. I respect that. I appreciate that. However, comma, you now have an obligation to those that are dealing with some kind of adversity, whether that's someone coming up behind you or lateral or even above you to share your lessons learned in the way in which you and we successfully did this. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about them. And that was now going back Oh, you know, yes. Right. We're going back like, like, oh, almost 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. Yeah. And that was the beginning moment for me um, for to be able to start to see it through that lens. And it was still a very gradual progression uh, where I struggled with this, you know, quiet professional mentality, which is part of our part of our organization. You know, you're, you're not, you're not a person that talks about it. You're a person that doesn't like, don't talk about it, be about it. So I really struggled with that. And it took me years to be able to see the difference between a quiet professional and a silent professional. And I now know, you know, where my integrity is and my reasons behind doing it and my intent. So I only bring this up because it's still a struggle for me to even just do what we're doing here now, like being in the public. As a public figure, as someone that's opening myself up and being vulnerable um, and being subject to that criticism, it's really difficult when you live this lifestyle and you believe in this lifestyle. But to your point, I have seen that impact. I've seen that impact on a scale as small as just my teammates, like 11 other guys, guys that are getting older, that are struggling to try to figure out how do I keep doing these things that I know I want to do? 
yeah. um, because that ha- requires modification based off of just age or injury or wear and tear or mental well-being or all the different things that we're exposed to that changes the variables within the equation. You then need to restructure how you go about doing it to complete a task. I've seen that effect on the team. And now I've seen the effect literally across the planet where I'll get messages or emails from people in a whole nother nation that are saying, Hey, I I was really struggling. I saw your thing. I'm doing much better. And so like the scale, thanks to technology and social platforms and stuff is is quite amazing. Um, But for me to be able to look at what I do as an advisor and a teacher is very much in line with what I do day to day in uniform. So really it's the same it's the same job. It's the same responsibility that I've taken on. It's just done through, you know, some different mechanisms. Man, Man. that every every word that comes out of your mouth could be a book, man. <laughs> it really can be just so amazing. Well, and we've talked about a lot of the things that you learned along the way, but I'm I'm wondering too. You have so many cool things that have, have come about. We talked about jujitsu a little bit. And you said, it says that you know multiple languages too, right? Mm. Uh, it just how, first of all, what languages, but more importantly, what have you learned about people as you've learned about those different languages? Oh, wow. That's an amazing question. So I would say I have, at this point, a very minimal understanding of Russian. That was the first foreign language that I learned in the special wow. forces qualification course. And then from there, I transitioned and I began learning Dari, which is one of the prominent languages spoken in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and then I also picked up a little bit of Pashto, which is also spoken in Afghanistan. And now my focus is Persian Farsi, oh. which is predominantly spoken out of Iran, but has yeah. spread throughout the rest of the region. I would say I have a working knowledge of these uh, of these languages. I'm by mm. no means fluent. Uh, when it comes time where I may need to use it, I mm. have to get back into the books and pull up all my materials and kind yeah. of refreshing things up. What I've learned about people, man, we could talk on hours on this. I will just say that uh, regardless of the region or the culture or what side you may be on, Um, And a lot of times we look at, you know, good versus evil. And I do believe that exists, but that's left up to interpretation of the individual at that time. And within context, I think most people out there um, are striving to live a both successful and happy life. And that has a different specific definition from person to person. Um, But as I've moved throughout the country and throughout the world and different continents to do what I do, um, that seems to be what I take away most, you know, when we go into a really hot location and there's a lot of enemy activity happening and, you know, even my, my feeling towards my adversary at that time, you know, mm-hmm. like this was business, man. Like I spent years duking it out with the Taliban years yeah. <laughs> under all kinds of different circumstances. And at no point, even then, maybe in my early, early years, But once I began playing this game, it was like, this isn't personal. You know, you have a belief and you're doing what you think you need to do. I have a belief. I'm doing what I think I need to do. And we're going to figure out who's better on this deck. And like, that's it. So really no uh, emotional anger towards even my opponents. It was just, we're both here to conduct business. And like, let's see who has the better day today. But then I think more to your point, I mean, people are people, but 
the just your your average civilian population that's that's oftentimes kind of trapped in between all this stuff that's happening you know just people looking to live a life of happiness and success and raise their families and pass on knowledge and set their kids up for success better than they had it really not much different than you see over here or in places like europe the conditions are different and i'll tell you lastly i'll say this the level of perspective that i've gained on human beings in different cultures is i mean it's a weapon if you can if you can see it and you can then weaponize generosity because oh. of that perspective it's unbelievable right i was in somalia and in kenya and in ethiopia back in 2016 and we were going all over the place just watching some the, the watching what some of these women were doing i'm talking literally guys yeah. A woman would have three small children strapped to her body with scarves and she would walk four or five miles to get to the oh. nearest fresh water source, gather three or four or five gallons, and oh. then lug all of that back in harsh terrain, brutal weather, wicked wildlife, enemy activity everywhere, us bombing in and out with our giant trucks and our tattoos and our Boston accent. And they're just going through this as a normal day-to-day -day life. And I see that moment and that images are burned into my head and I'm able to weaponize that in terms of generosity when I'm sitting at the drive-through with Dunkin' Donuts and it's taken an extra 10 minutes and I want to just lose my mind. I'm like, hold on a second. Whoa. <laughs> like, to say that I'm experiencing a first world problem right now would be a drastic understatement. Let's all keep <laughs> things in perspective, right? So what I, the, one of the many gifts I've been given with what I do is that level of perspective when it comes to human dynamic and cultures. And, you know, I know how crazy it can seem here in America. And it's like, you know, dogs and cats are living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> but I can say, and a lot of other people can attest and, and also co-sign that, we live in an um, absolutely an amazing, an amazing society and an amazing country full of opportunity. Um, you just have to choose to see it that way. Once you're, when you're able to see it through that lens as I have been able to see firsthand. That, that is so profound, man. <laughs> I awesome. mean, that just, <laughs> I feel, I feel so small right now because I think of all the dumb things I lose my mind over on a day-to-day -day basis. And to your point, it is so true. We have running water. We have electricity. Freak, we have the microphones, the computer, all that stuff. And we forget so often that so many don't have it. And seeing it from your lens and especially the intensity that you've seen the good and the bad and that you can mm. still extrapolate what is truly good about the world is saying something, man. It really is. Just, Weaponizing generosity. I know that, that, is, that, that is such a powerful <laughs> statement, man. Weaponizing generosity. And just, oh, Nick, and this is what's so cool is all the all the videos and everything I read about you, you see this warrior, this boom. And this side that balances that out and to see that human side of of connection with people, I would have never have thought that I was going to, to learn something from that perspective that have, mm. has, would impact me so deeply. I mean, I you, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Man. 
before we close mo can yeah. i can i ask one last question this is a <laughs> this is a big one for me and i'm not sure exactly even why it's a big one for me but we all have different perspectives we've just been talking about perspectives we we view things through our individual lens you know and if i'm from boston i'm going to see it one way if i'm from europe i'm going to see it in russia what, sure. whatever it is one of the terms that's that's been thrown around a lot in our conversation is warrior and I want to know what does that mean through the lens and the perspective of Nick? I guess to put it bluntly, uh, a warrior is someone who will continue fighting for a cause they believe is just uh, no matter what. And I just came up with that off the top of my head. Uh, you know, I think warrior is certainly a term that again is, is easily to slap against service members, those in the military, uh, law enforcement community, perhaps, um, athletes, you know, like taking the gridiron, like football players, like warrior. But in my opinion, warrior is a mentality. Warrior is nothing more than a mindset. It is 100% irrelevant to what you do to put food on the table. It's just a way of thinking about how you are going to prioritize tasks, prioritize goals, develop a strategy, and then be willing to execute on that doing whatever is necessary by any righteous means necessary. And I use that last portion of the of phrase quite often by any righteous means necessary, because it's one thing to say, I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. Well, whatever it takes could get nasty really fast. Yeah. Whatever it takes can get ugly. You can, if you're standing on the heads of, of your friends and stepping on people, and if you're like, that is like whatever you may think it takes, but I like to attach by whatever righteous means necessary, because to be a warrior doesn't mean you're a jerk. To be a warrior doesn't mean you are unkind to people. In fact, it's the opposite. Like yeah. Warriors enable. Warriors inspire. Warriors lead. Warriors make those around them better yeah. and force them to push themselves beyond. And they're there to help them get up and be resilient and be tough and keep going and let's go. Like, let's get back in the game. That's a warrior to me. So it extends far beyond swinging an axe or shooting a rifle. It's a, it's a mentality to go about how you approach day-to-day -day within your own personal initiatives as well as collectively as an organization. Wow. Love it. Thank you. I love that. I absolutely Nick, love that. I, this has been amazing. I, I, I'm, I, am, I am like, I am in, I'm floating right now because that's just, you never know what you expect when you're meeting a hero. Uh, meeting a hero, your hero, right? This is not only exceeding your expectations, but it is put it is put me at a plateau way above where I thought I could be, man. <laughs> Boom. Perfect. That's what we want, man. I love it. You were that you were awesome, man. And I, I hope that uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please let us know. It would be fantastic. Fantastic. I appreciate that, man. <laughs>